Welcome to the Cop Doc Podcast. This podcast explores police leadership issues and innovative ideas. The Cop Doc shares thoughts and ideas as he talks with leaders in policing, communities, academia, and other government agencies. And now, please join Dr. Steve Morielli and industry thought leaders as they share their insights and experience on the Cop Doc Podcast. Well, hello again, everybody. Steve Morielli coming to you from Boston, smoky Boston, I was just saying, because the smoke is coming down from Canada and the wildfires. But I have someone on the other side of the country, on the Pacific time zone, Dr. Obed Magni, and he is in Las Vegas today. Obed, how are you? Oh, I'm good, man. How are you doing, sir? I'm fine. Thank you so much for finally connecting. We've been on the phone off and on. I see some of the things that you've been doing. I think one way that we track others, unfortunately, in this world now is with LinkedIn. So I see some of the work you've been doing. I want to tell the listeners about you. I want you to tell us about yourself also, but I know that you've been at this. You're a former police officer for many years in Sacramento. You went back for a graduate and a doctoral credential, and you are now running Magni Leadership and doing some work in the policing field, right? Yes, sir. That's pretty good. Yeah. Right. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. Yeah. So I think what's important, and I've talked to a number of your colleagues many years ago, and actually not so many years ago, I was speaking to a colleague the other day, and I said, wow, when I first broke in, I wish the LEADS program was in place because I would have applied in a heartbeat, but it was not. It came after I started back from policing and into academia, but you are a Leeds Scholar alum. And one of the things that I know that you were involved in was the development or the establishment of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. So talk about your trajectory, how you ended up leaving the police department, what kind of work you did there, and then what you're doing now. Yeah, let's see if I can make a five-week story and uh, truncate it for you. So when I was a police officer, around 2007, I decided to go and get my master's degree. Now, being a fellow Bostonian, for those in the audience, you know, I went to UMass Boston, grew up in Dorchester, went to Dorchester High. So uh, shout out to all my Boston peeps that are listening to the show. But after I got my bachelor's degree from UMass Boston, I swore that I would never go back home. I had no interest in going to graduate school. You couldn't pay me to go back to graduate school. Something happened. I was a police officer, and there were some things going on in the policing profession that I loved. And I saw that there were rooms for improvement in other areas. So I decided to go back and get my master's degree and got my doctorate degree. Now, as you were just talking about the trajectory, this was kind of somewhat of an unorthodox trajectory because I didn't even see this coming even as I was going through this journey. My dissertation topic was on job satisfaction in police officers. There were a couple things that I saw in policing related to, obviously, with the economic collapse of 08. We saw that pension reform came down the pike and all these things that were just brand new to policing in general. And in that space, there were officers saying, you know what? I don't think I want to do this job anymore. I think I'm going to get out. There was this level of dissatisfaction that was going on. And I remember specifically a particular unit where everything was harmonious. Everything was great. The leaders left that unit and another leadership crew came in and there was like a 90, 95% mass exodus within a year. And I was like, how does that happen? So that's how I got interested in the whole job satisfaction, morale, and so on and so forth. Yeah, what's uh, causing the runaway? Correct, correct. So I was seeing this firsthand and I was seeing some of this in the research. One of my colleagues, Dr. Renee Mitchell, uh, shout out to Renee Mitchell. Yeah, I know. I know she was on the show a while back, yes. Yeah. And so, you know, Renee and I worked together when we were at SIPD mm-hmm. and we would have many conversations about the opportunity for policing to improve in many respects related to research and so on. And we all know that policing is one of those aircraft carriers that when we talk about change, it's going to take a while for it to turn around. It's not going to happen right away. And one of the things about Dr. Renee Mitchell, myself, and other like-minded folks is that we were solutions-oriented. So if we couldn't find the solution or if we couldn't get the solving of the problem done within our own respective agencies, because there were other people who were like-minded folks who worked for other departments, we decided, you know what? Let's go ahead and create the American Society of Evidence-Based Police. Let's create an institution that's going to advocate and push for research being a foundation, because number one rule of research is do no harm. And obviously, we don't want to do any harm to the public for those of us who work in public 
safety. So that's kind of how it started. So fast forward from there, the Lead Scholars Program was birthed the National Institute of Justice. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the 10 people who were selected each year to be a lead scholar. And then it led into me being a policing fellow with the National Policing Institute and so on and so forth. And now fast forward, here we are in 2023. The White House has officially recognized the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing as an institution. When you talk about police reforms, that should be looked to as a leader to being a part of that solution. And I just want to share this piece real quick. It was a whole bunch of cops, a whole bunch of cops from around the country saying, hey, we can do this better. What can we do to solve the problem? And we came together and again, we helped create the American side of evidence-based policing. And here we are, not even 10 years out, the office at the highest level recognizes us as being very influential and being part of the solution in solving a lot of the issues that we have in police. As it should be, I'm very happy to say that I've been a member for a few years. I, I kicked myself in the behind for not showing up in Vegas this particular year because I think it's a wonderful organization. And I've been dealing with the Canadian Society, the Australian Society, Australian New Zealand Society. And, and so it is something that many people resist, but it is extremely important that much like evidence-based medicine, that we do evidence-based policing, that we have some proof. And as a professor, and I know you're an adjunct, when you're talking to students and people are uttering sometimes some crazy thoughts, you say, well, how can you prove that? Tell me whether or not it's anecdotal or it is actually grounded in research and some empirical study. It's ironic too, your job satisfaction work that you did, that's what I did. I was doing transformational leadership and whether transformational leadership styles invoke better work ethic and job satisfaction in mine many, many years ago. So there's some overlap there, which is terrific. And so you're an author, you're a writer, you're a researcher, you're a facilitator, and you're going around the country doing all kinds of things. Please don't take this wrong. I don't think you will. But for those of us who are pracademics, that's what I would constitute both of us, right? People who have done the work and earn an academic credential. So not quite academic, but a practical academic, if you will. So if that's the case, the last person I talked to was Jim O'Keefe. And again, is one of those guys, like you said, that said, I never saw myself as earning a doctorate. When school was over, I was done. I remember getting my master's degree and being on the police department and realizing I don't want to shake doors for the rest of my life. That's really what, what the turning point was. And then I must tell you, I hate to say that I got bored, but I was looking to the future like you were, I'm sure. And I remember trying so hard to find a program and some people saying to me, as they might have said to you, we're putting a cohort together. We've already got a cop. I was a federal agent. But I know in the back of my mind, it was always like, I don't know if I'm smart enough for this. And I don't know if you had that same feeling at first, but self-doubt. It's not that we're not smart by any means, but you think, me, the cop is going to be going for a doctorate. And then you sit in the classroom and you realize, I could do this. Is that, I see you mm-hmm. shake your head, but talk about that. I can, I can tell you, I remember this like it was 15 minutes ago. My very first day, Matt Powers was the professor, Cal State Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my Cal State Long Beach folks. I remember the first day I was sitting in his class and everybody's doing the introduction across the room and he starts talking and I'm like, I do not belong here. I am in way over my head. This is, I was a C average student in high school. I graduated undergrad with a 2.01 GPA. The joke that I like to tell is that I majored in football and track and field when I was at UMass Boston, <laughs> right? Because yes. I had zero direction as far as like where I wanted to go in life. Yeah. But here I am, first day, and I just remember within those first 15 minutes, I was like, I'm I'm a fish out of water. I definitely don't belong here. And to your point, as I continue to take these classes and everything, I was like, you know what? This isn't so bad. And that's what it's like, right? Whenever you try something new, it's just awkward, it's clunky, it's like, do I really believe? You know, should I be here? Like you said, the self-doubt and sometimes when you think about the self-efficacy, right? Yeah. You know, if you're a police officer, you're just a, that's the equivalent of a jock, but you're just, you're just an officer. You know, that smart stuff is for other people, not for you. <laughs> and, you know, that's just some getting over. Here I am 4.0 later with my master's and then when I was getting my doctorate. So I did it five years in a row between my master's and my doctorate. Finished my dissertation before the coursework was over. Now, if you had told me at UMass Boston I was going to be doing that, I would have been like, there's <laughs> no, not in this lifetime or the next lifetime. I know. But you know what? Anything but your mind to it. And I know it sounds corny, but this is one of the things that I know we'll get into it today. But purpose is everything, man. If you have purpose in life, if you have purpose in what you're doing, there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be barriers, but you're just going to crash right through those barriers making those things happen. Yeah, that's a message. Yeah. And I love what you're saying. It's interesting. There's two things that come to mind I just jotted down. Number one is that I remember calling a teacher who had kind of got me through a couple of high school classes in some cases with a D minus. And I'm ashamed mm-hmm. to tell you, so I should not be sitting in a chair teaching 
reaching others, but it took me a little while to find myself. And I remember calling her probably five years ago. And I said to her, Jean, remember me? That I remember you, Steve. I just have to tell you, thank you for believing in me, for letting me get out of your class. I just finished my doctorate and I wanted to thank you and let you know that whatever promise you saw in me, I didn't see, but ultimately it paid off. And so that's important. But that whole idea of purpose that you just said, and there's a reason that I think we're talking about this. And for the listeners, I don't want them to shut down. It's for people who are interested in, in continuing to learn, to be lifelong learners, which I think you and I are. I remember talking to an old boss probably two months ago, and he was one of my favorite bosses. And it's a story I tell in many trainings. And that is that he believed in me and he basically pointed me in the direction and let me go and let me flourish and let me make things happen. He allowed me to use my creative juices, but I walked away from him. He's 90 years old right now. And we were in his company and his, with his wife, he drove from Charleston, from up near Myrtle Beach to Charleston to meet us with his wife. And I went away and I came back and they were talking and my wife and he had sort of a shit-eating grin on their face. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I just told Kathy, don't let Steve retire. He has to have a purpose. He has to have something to do or he'll shrink or die on the vine. And so that's exactly where I'm at. I'm at the twilight of my career, but I still have so many things I want to do, writing a book, doing training and doing the podcast. And your head is shaking. You look like one of those dogs on the back of an old car. <laughs> but but react to that, Oved. It's purpose is everything. And you said something about you being in the twilight of your career. We both know that in policing, unfortunately, and I say that with a capital U, unfortunately, too many people in policing hide their purpose, their life into the job. And the job is everything for them. So when you retire, when your career is over in policing, a lot of people tend to put their, you know what, my life is over too. And this is why suicide rates and alcoholism and other vices are so high, especially in retirement, because there's a loss of purpose. And I want people to understand that purpose is not in policing in a specific role. It's not the end all and be all. And when I say purpose, I'm talking about the bigger picture. I didn't know that when I became a police officer, I was going to leave policing early to start my own consulting company. But there's purpose behind that. I do want to help the profession. And I'm suited in this position where I am right now to make the greatest impact possible, yes. whether it's presenting, whether it's teaching, consulting, all of those things. So it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a directional thing. So when you talk about the twilight of the end of your career, that's just one chapter ending and chapter two beginning. No, you're right. And then there's a chapter three and a chapter four and a chapter five. And one of the things, one of the growth disservices that we do in this profession is that we don't teach that and we don't impart that in a lot of people, you know, who are in the profession, whether you're a police officer, federal agent, doesn't matter. We don't do that. We tie everything into the job and you are nothing without the job. And then if you happen to, let's say you get fired or you medically retire, there's just some people who are sitting around like, oh my God, what am I going to do with the rest do. of my life? Let me tell you, truth be told, one of the reasons why I got my doctor's degree was because that hit me. I said to myself, you know, this isn't one of these nine to five. I'm a banker. I'm just going to go in. And I know that at five, I'm getting off on time. And I get the weekends off. That's not how this works. You and I both know there have been many people who've been hurt. Unfortunately, many who've been killed. But I said to myself, if I ever got hurt, what would my transition What's your fallback? Be? Yeah. Right. And you know what? Truth be told, I don't like the word fallback. This is a person. This is not a me. fallback. Yeah, you understand. I understand. Right. Yeah. And I know what you mean. I know it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just semantic. But it's just like, hey, if I'm no longer a police officer today, what am I doing? Yeah, what's well, next? Well, I know that I, right. And now for me, I know I love to teach. I love to mentor. I love to help others. I love to help organizations thrive and so on. So I just started making it a point in the event that that day ever does come. And I knew the day was going to come. I mean, everybody's looking forward to retirement. But if that retirement day ends up being a lot sooner than expected, I'm in a better place to put myself to succeed. And again, everybody's got a different path. There is no one right way to do this. There are many, many, many avenues. And I'm not even by any stretch of the imagination saying, do exactly what I did and you'll get there. Everybody's got their own path. Well, you know, that's interesting too, because it seems to me that when we went back to school at a late age, it was more meaningful to us because we had experience that we could tie and apply to the lessons being given. And again, I have a series of students that I work with, some of whom go, know these four plus one programs. And here you are, today you're a senior, you're still a senior, you're going to start your master's degree, but you have no life experience. And so it's much different. It makes it a little easier. And I know that those students learn from people who have experience, not just from me. I think that's important. So non-traditional students and being in class as a non-traditional student is important. But I want to ask this, so many people will reach out to me and say, you know, Steve, I'm thinking of work, working on my doctorate. And 
And so I'll actually call them and I'll say, okay, why? What do you want to do with it? If you are thinking that the doctorate itself is going to earn you a teaching position, you're woefully wrong because there's not as many positions available. You can certainly become an adjunct. You could do that with a master's degree, but just understand the time and energy it takes and the money it takes to get a doctorate and make sure that you understand why you're doing it. You're shaking your head. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, for those who are in the research world, it is nothing to hear about students with their PhDs fighting for five, six, seven years just to get on a tenure track at a particular college or university. Yes. So whether it's postdoc work or they're just trying to find a university with an opening, there's definitely no shortage of adjunct positions. But we all know that the pay for adjunct is disrespectful. Yes. I'm just going to just say that out loud. Yeah. And nobody goes to school for three, four, five years, write the dissertation to make minimum wage money. And I'm just I like, so I got I got to put that out there. If there's somebody who wants to get into academia, and, and I think you just said it brilliantly, you are absolutely fooling yourself if you think, oh, I got a PhD, I can just apply to any school I want. It's just like, no, you've got 500 people applying for this one open position. Right. And what sets you apart from the next person? Right. And so that's somebody who's even just going into that day. That's just something to be mindful of. But again, when we talk about that purpose, I've sat on many dissertation committees. And the very first question I ask is that right there. Somebody says, hey, I want to do research in whatever. First thing I ask them is like, okay, well, why? And then they'll say, they'll give their why. And they're like, well, how does this affect me right. if I'm a, somebody who works in public works or if I'm a garbage person? Why should I care about this particular yeah. subject? Who's going to care? I get them to think, exactly. Why? Who's going to care? My question too. <laughs> exactly. So you get, and then that's where you get them to think more globally about how, you know what, this affects this, which can affect you this way. And, you know. So we're talking to Dr. Obed Megney. He's in Las Vegas today. Obed is a Bostonian who is now out in Vegas and doing a number of facilitating and consulting work with police agencies and other agencies. And we came upon each other because of his work with American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Let's talk about the issue of race in policing. Is it really as bad as it seems? Are all police officers racist? Are all agencies racist? How do we deal with implicit bias and all of the things that are going on that are tearing our society apart? What's your take? And what people may not know is that you are a man of color. And a handsome man of color, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most important part. The handsome, <laughs> the handsome part. part. <laughs> but talk about talk about that from your perspective. And being a police officer, a man of color, that had to change the view of some people about you inappropriately. But you've lived it. You have a lived experience that this guy doesn't have. So talk about that. So you just literally gave me like 200 dissertation topics alone. <laughs> There's so many levels, so many tiers to that question. Is every single police officer racist? Is every single agency racist? Obviously not. Is there racism in policing? Absolutely. Anybody who says that there isn't is lying to you or they put their head in the sand and they're like, I don't want to know what's going on in real life. So let's make sure we put that out in the open first. The second part of this, and this is one of the reasons why I got involved with research in issues of race and so on. When we talk about trust and legitimacy, let me ask you a question. Let's say you call Verizon because your phone's not working and you call customer service and say, hey, you know what? I'm having this issue. Or let's just say you go to the store, your local store, whatever. They take care of your phone. Everything's cool. What's the first thing that happens when you walk out the store or before you walk out the store when somebody talks to you? They ask you, hey, would you be willing to do a survey real yes. quick to find out what it looks like? That, so did we treat you right, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't matter if it's Angie's List or any other service that you take a part of where you're looking for service. They're always saying, hey, what did we do well? If we didn't fulfill our requirements, hey, what could we have done better? Yeah. When we have issues related to race in the country and policing, far too often leaders in policing ignore those disenfranchised groups, or at least give the optics that they're not paying attention to them. And then it gets to the point where when something blows up, oh, hey, we need to connect with the community. Well, it's like, that's not how you establish trust. You don't wait for a crisis. Right. Say, no, no, hey, no. The relationship you know should be should be initiated before, not after. Correct. After a problem. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I know we're going to get into this when we talk about the 54th Mile Policing Project, because that's directly tied to what you just asked. You put in the sweat equity on the front end so that when something does inevitably happen, that trust is there to help you manage through the crisis. It's no different than if you're in a relationship with a spouse or with a loved one. When something goes awry, you don't just say, screw you, I'm just going to pretend like I don't know you anymore and just go about your life. That's not how that works. If you're with your spouse and let's say you guys have a fight about whatever or blow up about whatever, you work through that to a better outcome so that you can avoid that situation on the back end. And far too often in policing, we don't pay enough attention to disenfranchised groups, black folks and 
in particular, black communities in particular in this country. And we tend to over police. We're not working in partnership with them. And that's what leads to a lot of distrust. And we all know about the war on drugs where we tried that public safety. Uh, I mean, I'm an ODA agent, so I know. And I know the crack issue. Yeah. I, I do very well. Right. And we know what that led to. It led to the breakup of the black family. Yep, 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 we yep. know that. And people are like, we don't trust the police. And somebody who's worked in investigations like yourself, how do you get crime solved? You got to have cooperation with the community. So if the community doesn't trust you, you don't have a partnership there. That's going to be a hindrance. That's how I wanted to address that answer the question that way. And so when we talk about trust and legitimacy, it has to be done on the front end. And I'm going to use the words of a wise friend of mine. He said, building trust is like building a sandcastle one grain at a time. And it takes forever. Anybody who thinks you just do a couple of cops with coffee events and then that's going to establish the trust, you are sadly mistaken. It is a process, a process that can take years. And it's not going to be done with a couple, but you're not going to do it with just a, a special event or something. I understand. Yeah. It's done when the cameras are not there. It's done when nobody's watching. It's done behind the scenes. It's you being at a local event that's not advertised and you're with a group of people who you normally would not hang out. During the walk from some of the Montgomery. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, let's slow down. Let's slow down because okay, nobody uh, knows about that. And let's set the table. Okay. You and a few colleagues decided to walk the same walk that others had before you from Selma to Montgomery, Montgomery Alabama. 54 miles. Is that yes, correct? Sir. And you did yes, that sir. with how many people? There was two of my colleagues. Okay. Doctor, Dr. Sean, I know, I know, I know. Madison. Madison was Austin Chief and my other colleague, Assistant Chief, Charles McGuire in Arlington, Texas. Okay. How did you get to know each other? So we were all lead scholars. Sean and Charles, for those listening, the Lead Scholars Program is a three-year commitment. So you go across the country, you participate in research, panels, presentations, all those things. Obviously advancing research data, science, and research and policing. And so we were all lead scholars at the same time. And so I was the young guy coming in when Sean and Tark were done with their third year. And during our talk, we talked a lot about how can we help improve policing, especially when, we talk, when we're talking about issues of race, trust and legitimacy. And Tarek came up with the idea. He said, hey, you know what? As a metaphor, we've got to build bridges. This is what we have to do. Oh, right? yeah. So when you think about a bridge, you're connecting two opposite ends of, of a roadway or earth, right, right, right. Just a path to meet in the middle. And we've got to help establish that. We decided to take it upon ourselves, since we all had a platform, individually and collectively, to retrace the steps of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And so this wasn't like a protest mark or anything. It was just, we wanted to bring to life as a beginning to creating a solution to a problem that was, I mean, it's hurting America, right? Saw what happened in 2020. We've seen what happened in Ferguson. I mean, and so on. And we wanted to do the best that we could to prevent another Ferguson or another Minneapolis and so on. Tar came up with the idea of bridges and John and I were like, yeah, you know what? I kind of like that idea. That, that's essentially what we're doing. And what better way to start this project than to go down to Selma, Alabama and walk 54 miles just to raise the awareness. And we did this with a documentary filmmaker. So he filmed the whole walk and part of a documentary that's part of a curriculum that we're building right now, uh, belief executives in help solving that problem of how do we establish and sustain trust in the community, right? This is not a, there's no destination when it comes to trust. It's always going to be a work in progress. I think people forget that. They think that there's some magic number you hit and then, oh, we don't have to do anything anymore. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, we're done. Far from yeah. it. I know, and I know, that's I know. right. And, it's and never so, one and done, is it? No, that's the thing. If you think about working out, right? So I'm going to go off on a small tangent. That's okay. If you are if you have the perfect physique, if you're somebody who works out and you've got the perfect physique, do you stop working out because you have the, the perfect physique? <laughs> no, no. Absolutely not. Yeah. You maintain it. It would just be irresponsible to say, oh, we've reached a certain point. Now we don't have to talk to you or deal with you anymore. That's not how that works. Again, we wanted to create something that would outlive the three of us. And for generations and generations to follow, there'd be a template in place that people can follow, people in leadership and policing to follow to help maintain and sustain that trust and legitimacy team. So we did this walk. It took us about two and a half days. It's the beginning. It's not the end because this is going back to the, the 54th mile. There was technically an end for the physical walk. Walk, but it's the beginning, and we're going to use different parts of the walk in the curriculum to talk about different issues. So we're talking about race and policing. We're talking about emotional intelligence and other historical contexts of America. And I guess you could say the, or I guess you could say the negative history between the police and the black communities. And we already know about Bloody Sunday. What do all of these things mean? And how do we use all of these examples here today, moving forward, in solving a lot of these a lot of these issues? Well, we're talking to Obed Magni, and he is in. Los 
Las Vegas, and we're just beginning to talk about the 54 miles and a documentary. Is it available? Not yet. It's not up for public consumption as of yet. Okay. Again, the thing is, is that for us, and this is going back to what we talked about with the purpose, right? We didn't want to create a film and put it on Hulu or Netflix yeah. and everybody watches it. Oh, this was a great film. That's yeah. great. And then yeah. everybody forgets about it. Yeah, no, no, no. You want that yeah. to be the starting point to curriculum and to thinking and all that. Well, you know, it's interesting because yeah. I've talked to so many people on the podcast and one of them indicated was Bill Bratton who said police have to understand the history of their agency because police were misused in the past and grandparents or grand great grandparents were harassed and sometimes beaten by police and they hold that historical perspective and that seeps through a family right it really does and so we have to understand what our predecessors did to others oppressed and then help build the bridges that you're talking about to say I'm not that way. I don't want to be that way. I want to understand your lived experience. I want to listen to you. I want you to listen to me. I want us to better understand each other. But that's a really difficult thing. You have to start somewhere, but that's tough to do. It is. And one of the things that we do, not just the three of us, but you look at the great leaders in this world, love is one of the things that comes up because they've got love for their people. Dr. Cornell West said, you can't lead the people unless you love the people. And so if you're going to establish a relationship, one, especially that played with the community, yeah, you're going to have to come out and say, you know what? We were not perfect. We did some really terrible things. We're not going to shy away from that. Here we are falling on the sword. Moving forward, let's do the best that we can to right the wrongs moving forward and let's solve this problem together. You're absolutely right. That's very, very difficult, but that's part of the process. People think yeah. this is easy. Oh, you mean you just show up one day and you just talk to a couple of community members, clergy, and everything will be fine? It's like, no. A lot of this work is going to be very, very uncomfortable. It has to be uncomfortable. I can tell you right now, even with personal experiences, I've got a couple of friends that I had fallen short in some things with them and I have to call and say, yes, that was 100% on me. I screwed up. This is my fault. I don't make any bones about it. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable, but the feeling you have on the back end, it's like, okay, now that we've acknowledged the skeletons in the closet or the elephant in the room, what do we have to do to move forward so that we can mend these fences? It's like, hey, we're all going to have that car with some surgery. It's going to always be there. But let's cover it up. Let's heal and move forward because you can't move forward unless there's healing. And you can't have healing until we, you have that uncomfortable, crucial conversation. Yeah, that's extremely important to understand. And I think I came from a pretty white neighborhood and school. I was raised in the 60s and 70s. And my time in the military is when I realized that it really didn't matter color of someone's skin or what their religion was because our mission was to protect each other. We're in uniform, no different than policing, but we're in uniform. It doesn't matter who who you are or where you come from. But I like Covey's piece and one of the principles, seek first to understand and then be understood. To me, that's an extremely basic way to understand. But I have to tell you in school, so many people who work as faculty don't want to touch the third rail, don't want to start any trouble, don't want to open things up. And I have to tell you, that's exactly where I feel the most comfortable to say, Obed, tell us how you feel about policing. Tell us the experience that you have. Help us understand you or your family and what your perspective is. It's the only way we're going to understand. And some would say, you know, don't don't call me out just because I'm a black man. Well, well, I'm not doing that. I'm trying to help everybody understand what we've all gone through so that we can take our friggin' blinders off and understand each other. And you're shaking your head. I don't, again, this is touchy stuff, but I think it's so important to talk about. So the reason I'm shaking my head is I get that it's touchy stuff. I'm very comfortable, extremely comfortable in the state for several reasons, because there's a research component in this. There's a real life component in this and it's nuanced, but it doesn't have to be accusatory. It doesn't have to have a negative connotation. So here's what I'm going with this. I always make it a point to model the behavior. I don't want to just be the guy that says, hey, do this because I said so. You're going to see it happen and then you're going to say, well, he's about that life. He, he does this. So the uncomfortable piece, it's the stages that where it's like, hey, it's comfortable where everybody can speak their truth without judgment. When it's established from the front end yeah. and people can feel comfortable, you're going to be much yeah. better off than, hey, we're going to get, a, get together and then we're just going to, with zero contact, we're just going to what, what happens is you have to set the ground rules and you have cool. to build a rapport and you have, to, I'm talking about talking with a group and we have to say, yeah. here's what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to understand each other better. Correct. And so with emotional intelligence, it's managing your emotions as they happen to you, recognizing and managing the emotions of others. So I've had calls for service where somebody would MS me up and down for like 15 minutes and everything. In the back of my mind, I'm like, this person's hurting and they're just venting. They just want to be hurt. And I don't see it as threatening. I just let them speak 
communicate their peace, acknowledge their hurt, and then move forward from there. Whereas somebody else may not be aware of that. They're just like, hey, this person's trying to be threatening, and then it becomes a use of force or it becomes a hands-on situation, a less than ideal situation. And so let's let's just put it out there. We don't teach this stuff in policing enough. We only do 3.21% worth of interpersonal skills in an average six-month academy. So out of 650 hours, we're only spending 20. Now, we all know that 99% of the work in policing, especially if you're an officer, is you're in the people business, you're dealing with people who are probably having a bad day. And you should be equipped, just like with handcuffs, batons, pepper spray, you should be equipped with emotional intelligence skills to deal with people who might otherwise might pose a threat to you. And really, they're just venting and they're just talking out loud. There's some cultures where people use their hands. That's not meant to be threatening. There's some cultures where not making eye contact is a sign of respect and not being deceiving. So there's layers to this. And knowing, learning, and understanding these things are important. We don't do it enough in policing. And that's why you see a lot of issues or you do see a lot of videos where some people are, hey, why did he take it? Or why did she take it to the next level when it didn't even warrant that? Right. But now you're gambling, no pun intended because I'm in Vegas, uh, <laughs> with the hope that the person, the officer, the individual officer, or even the, the uh, citizen, whoever, you know, you're hoping that they understand versus the, do they have the skills to understand those dynamics? Right. So when you're in that room and it's established on the front end, like, hey, we're going to have some uncomfortable conversation. We know it's going to happen. It's not meant to be personal. This is part of the process. This is the crucible that we have to go through in order to be better on the back end. Right. That's why the Marines do it. That's why there's Hell Week in Navy SEAL training and so on and so forth. There has to be the crucible to understand collectively together without judgment and address the issues that got us to this here, got us to this point in the first place, and move forward. No one is sitting here saying, hey, see, this is your fault, specifically, why we have these issues here going on tomorrow. We know that wearing the uniform is a low-hanging fruit, because when you're wearing the uniform, you represent the government. Easy, easy, easy picking. So, you have to understand, you're just showing up breathing in a uniform, whether you're white, black, whoever. Some people are going to feel a certain type of way. As long as you understand that, and you're not taking that personal, you're already in a much better spot to deal with whatever situation that you're dealing with. So, we we don't do it enough in policing. There are many opportunities for this that unfortunately never take place because there are some people who are uncomfortable with the fact that, hey, this is going to be messy. I've never had to deal with this. I would rather not deal with it. And and this is one of the reasons why the 54th Mile Policing Project is going to address this issue. That's great. So we've been talking with Obed Magni, Dr. Obed Magni, and is in Las Vegas. He is an adjunct instructor, a former Sacramento police officer, very active as a lead scholar for NIJ and is active and actually was one of the founders of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. And we've been talking about things that relate to race and minority and difference in cultures and all of those kinds of things. And I don't mean to focus only on the African-American populace, but there's so many others, especially out where you are, so many other minority populations that we don't always understand. Concern that I have is that with policing, the answer in a lot of ways is let's get them training. Let's let them know about mental health. Let's let them know about autism. Let's let them know about the Asian culture. Let's let them know. It becomes overwhelming to police to constantly be told, you need to know this better. It's beneficial for them, you understand, but there is a resistance and a reluctance because people, I know, I mean, you were a cop, I was a cop. Don't tell me I'm racist. I'm not saying that you're racist. I'm just wanting you to understand other people's perspectives, whatever the word might be. But what's your thought about the receptivity that you get from police departments when you are conducting trainings such as emotional intelligence or the knowledge of other people. What's out there? What are you doing? What are you seeing? How is it being received? Number one, when we talk about, let's just say diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, everyone automatically defaults to, oh, what are we talking about? Black and white. And no, we're not talking about black and white. I let them know right out the gate, it goes beyond that. So yes, there's black, white, different races and so on, but there's the diversity of thought, which means religion. Are you conservative, liberal, libertarian, no part affiliation? Are you LGBTQ or are you not? There are so many levels. And this is one of the reasons why you're seeing the issues with recruiting and retention and policing. The generation of yesterday that put in their 30 years, maybe got treated like trash, but they knew they were going to get their attention, moved to Montana. Shout out to Montana. I've never <laughs> been there. It's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> I'll get there someday. Yeah. And the happily ever after. Today's generation is not interested in that. Today's generation wants 
wants to be respected. They want to be given opportunities to succeed. They want to be given autonomy. They want to be challenged and challenged in a way that makes them better at their job in their certain skill set. They want to be respected and seen as an individual and not as a badge number. Because we've never had that kind of culture in policing, nor have we had the training to change the culture like that institution-wide, you have this gap where I might be Obed Magni. I want to be a police officer, so let me go talk to this guy, Steve Morelli, because I heard he's working over here at uh, Acme Police Department. And I go over and I talk to Steve. Steve, hey, hey man, I want to be a police officer. Is Acme a good place to work in? If you say, man, don't come here. Man, this place is... It sucks. Well, let me tell you something. It sucks. You have, <laughs> if you talk on... Yeah, and so don't even come here. So am I, as a recruit, going to go work for Acme? The answer is no. Second part of that, and I'm glad you asked that question, because again, all of this is related to the retention issues that we have going on at policing right now. I'm going to give you a specific story about two people. I'm not going to mention what their agencies are, but they're both on the East Coast. I know two individuals with doctorate degrees who are now finalists for chief jobs across the country. Again, not going to say where, because of the value that they bring. Their respective organizations have ignored them, have not given them the opportunities to succeed. For those in the audience who are in a position to hire and recruit, I want you guys to listen to me very, very carefully, okay? Those two stories are not unique. I know people who have been in other agencies, smaller agencies, who have value in their organizations ignored them, and now they're at another agency with billion-dollar budget, and they're absolutely thriving. In many respects, there's a lot of pockets around the country where people say, hey, you know what? This whole thing about the progressive, you have to be an officer, before, then you have your sergeant, then you have to be a lieutenant, and you have to work in these units. People are starting to say, we don't even see the value in that. If somebody at an officer level or somebody at a sergeant level, we're just using those two lengths as an example, if they can come in here in a leadership position and provide value to the organization, can we get you here yesterday? This is starting to happen right now in this retention recruiting war, if you want to call it that, yeah. me being a big fan of college sports. This is this is where we're at. And so when you have today's generation saying, hey, I have value that I can bring to your organization. And the organization says, yeah, screw your values. We don't care about that. What you need to do is hit the streets because these calls are pending. When that happens, that employee, today's generation, the millennials, yeah. the Gen X, Gen Y, the Alpha, they're like, oh, is this what I'll tell you what, check this out. Here's my resignation paper. I'm out of here. Bye. And so that's the rift. You got the generational rift of the old guard wrestling with the new guard, where the new guard is saying, we don't care. Not to say that they don't care about money. Money's obviously important. If you're being paid your market worth, you're good. Because we all know in the Bay Area, people are like astonished when they hear, what? They're paying $170,000 a year. And I'm like, if you're in the San Francisco area, $170,000 a year is like not even a drop in the bucket. Now, if you're in Wyoming or something, but my <laughs> But yeah, that's a different story. Way, but yeah. going back to your original question with the DEI part or with the uh, what I'm saying in these trainings is there is literally a lack of recognition of the talent that people have in their own organization. And you just have other agencies who are savvy enough just over here poaching, just poaching. And so if you're a leader of an organization, a police chief, even if you're a lieutenant, it doesn't even matter if you're mid-level manager. If you've got somebody who's got talent and you're not overtly, I want you to make sure you guys listen to the words that are coming out overtly, of my mouth. Yeah. Overtly, yeah. Overtly trying to cultivate and make sure that person is in the best position to succeed, not just from their own right, but for the organization's standpoint, you are literally the problem in this retention issue. So if you've got somebody in your department who's got a law degree and they pass the bar and they're still working patrol and there's no in-house counsel or you haven't created that position, even if it's an auxiliary position, you're going to be going to fall behind. Yeah, you're underutilizing a person's talent and I think identify that's a really important thing. Identifying leadership potential is extremely important. And I think that for so many leaders, and I do so much training, your job, one of my favorite sayings now is leadership. It's all on you, but it's not about you. It's about your people. It's about developing others. It's about developing and sustaining the organization by creating opportunities to tap into the intellectual curiosity people have and let them come up with ideas on how to improve the organization, how to improve service delivery, how to improve relationships. That's extremely important. What say you? The research is overwhelming on Here I'm telling you anecdotally, there's a frontline supervisor and an officer who are finalists for chief jobs across the country because their organizations are like, ah, whatever, you're not going to go anywhere. Again, this is the old guard mentality of, oh, you should just be happy to have a job. Meanwhile, you're hemorrhaging on the back end. So to your point, the research is overwhelmingly supportive of it. And if you recognize your employee, 
if you give them the ability to achieve, if you recognize the work that they do, you put them in a position where they're able to do the job itself and not mess with it. And you're there as a mentor to help guide. At the end of the day, it's all about relationships. Nobody's going to say, man, you know what I love about Steve Morelli? I love Steve Morelli because that man knew policy and procedure better than anybody else. No one is going to trip over the phone to get to work early because they know that you're going to talk about policies and procedures. That's the expectation. The expectation is you're going to know that stuff at a baseline level. You're going to expect that your supervisor treats you with respect and dignity. If you're in an organization or if the culture of the organization does not see you and does not recognize you, you're already failing. And the research is, and again, these are not my words. I mean, I'm just putting my own spin on it. But the research on this is, again, overwhelming. It's voluminous. And so you got to say to yourself, at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. So you can put someone in a position who can connect with others. And this is going back to the emotional intelligence piece, right? If you're connecting with others and you understand people, that's how trust is created and sustained. The IQ part, that can come late. Learning the technical aspects of the job, that can come later. That's not the most important part. Relationships are always, at the end of the day, the most important thing. Well, you know, I'm thinking about this. I think there are some people who would listen to this podcast and listen to you and I, know you and I, or the people that we have a tendency to gravitate to, and those are the people who have promise. Those are the people who have new ideas, who challenge the system, who question them. And some people get aggravated when we ask questions. Well, why do we do it this way? And what about that? Have you thought about this? They see those people like me or like you at times as a threat, as opposed to saying, these are people with promise. Let's listen. That's that protectionism of many people who are in positions of power in policing, who want to keep it very close to the vest because they want to retain their job and they don't want to let anybody else in. I'm seeing you shake your head, but I think that day has come and has to go where you realize and utilize the people for the benefit of the organization. This is why I'm such a proponent of coaching and policing. That, what you just shared, is always at the forefront. If you were a potential client and you said, hey, listen, I'm running this organization and we're falling short ABC through XYZ. And so I'm saying to you, okay, before I take you on as a client, I want to know a little bit about you, what you're looking for, you know, what you want to accomplish, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to ask, let's just make up a scenario right now. So let's say that your protectionism is there's some people in your organization that have a skill set related to law and we'll just say uh, psychology. So I'm asking you, Chief Morelli, you have a recruiting and retention problem and we've identified that some of it has to do with you not recognizing your employees. What would it look like if you were fully staffed? You would say, oh man, it'd be great. How would that help you be great? Well, I wouldn't spend as much time working on this budget. I wouldn't be spending as much time on scheduling, etc. Okay, but all that free time, what would that help you accomplish? Oh, well, maybe I can spend more time with community members and attend more meetings. So when we literally write this out, it becomes a, hey, wait a minute, me helping them is going to make them look like a superstar and it makes me look like a superstar because now my city council's like, hey, wait a minute, now we can do ABC, X, Y, and Z. Bellevue, Nebraska, Chief Clary, shout out to Chief Clary, does not have a recruiting and retention problem. He's fully staffed. In fact, he's looking to add more STE positions simply, and he's a lead scholar because of the same things that we're talking about here on this podcast. He's just one of those guys who just goes out there and just does it. He literally says, okay, who are my best people and what and who's got skills? Who in my department has a skill set that is unorthodox and how can we utilize that to help you? So what happens is when people say, hey, you know what? Tell me about that organization. If your average frontline employee is like, man, this is the best place on earth because if you got a skill set, they're going to want you to do agency. Yeah. The military does this, by yes, the way. They do. The military already does this. You got a skill set in something? Yeah. Oh, in basic training? That's the lead. <laughs> We're going to put you in that position, whether it's line drones or IT, whatever that is. We're going to put you in that position tomorrow. And that's something that we got to move towards in policing. And if you don't, you're going to fall behind. This is why, again, I will overtly say this. You cannot be a leader in policing and not have a coach. Yes, you have to pay money for a coach. But the return on investment, Again, these are not my words. We had to look this up on your own. The return on investment is somewhere in like the hundreds. Whatever it is that you spend on the front end, you get quadruple on the back end. So that is from a fiscal standpoint, from an operational standpoint, whether it's from a leadership vacuum standpoint, succession yeah. planning, recruiting, retention, all of these things. Yeah. This is a normal thing in the private sector. It is normal. 
Yes, it is. Normal. Uh, mid-level managers, all the way up to the CEOs, everybody's got a coach. And if you want a trusted advisor, coaching is the proactive side. The trusted advisor is on the reactive side. So again, you said it earlier in the podcast, in policing, we're talking about public safety. We're talking about lives being in the balance, officer safety and public safety and so on and so forth. If there's a crisis that takes place or something that's afoot, do you have someone who's objective, somebody who's got no agenda, who can give you some sound advice, but somebody who knows enough about the game, I'm talking about policing, right? To give you some sound advice and say, hey, let's look at this holistically. Here's some of the pros, here's some of the cons. You know, if you go in this route, these things can happen. If you go this route, these things can happen. I think based on my experience training, you know, me working in not just operations, but being in professional standards, working in policies. And I was on our union board for three years, so I've seen what labor looks like inside and out and all the work that I'm doing at the federal level. You know, it's just, do you have somebody who can give you that advice? And it's almost criminal, and, I'm, and I don't use that word lightly, but it's almost criminal that the overwhelming majority of leaders don't even have a trusted advisor. So that's something that I'm also pushing for and advocating. I think that's important. And part of what your role is, and when I've been called in to coach police chiefs, I find that one of the things that you're doing, let me say this, in a lot of ways, and this is going to ruffle some feathers at perhaps, it is like going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist who is never going to give you the answer, but is always going to ask the questions. And it's when you ask those pointed questions that people reflect and sometimes get caught short. Well, I've never really thought of it. Okay, well, why don't you think about that? Why don't we reconvene the next time? Tell me what you're thinking about. So sometimes what you're doing is leading through questions, leading the thoughts through questions. And I think that's really important. It's not something that police chiefs, police deputy chiefs should be afraid of, but should be looking for so that they are not looking for sage advice from within the organization, but from outside the organization. Go ahead. The first pillar of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. The first thing we talked about with the 54th Mile Policing Project is that journey of self-discovery. Giving you the answer, yeah, that'd be one thing, but have you thought it through? Have you looked at the pros and cons? Maybe there's some biases that you may not be aware of. And how does that come out? It comes out through a coaching process or through the trusted advisor process. It's going to vary from agency to agency. You might have one agency where the issues might have to do with the mid-level management. You might have another issue with another agency where the issues really might have to do more with equipment or with the game room. I'll tell you, I mean, one agency that I know of, this is why it's so important to have state interviews. And I don't know if the audience are familiar with state interviews, but everybody does an exit interview, right? And this is exit interviews inherently in my, are just it's bad. It's too late. My, it's my, kind of too late. Right. You <laughs> wait until it's too late to ask the question, yeah. why would you not uh-huh. look into it before it becomes an issue? This yeah. is the reason why you go every year to the doctor for your physical to get a checkup. You don't wait until you're on your deathbed. It doesn't make any sense. So this is why again, yeah, when you're doing surveys within your organization, find out what those issues are. Take care of the first two, three, four, five low-hanging fruit because it shows that you're interested in solving the problem versus, oh, we just do a survey with the city every year and then we gather this data and then we take this sheet and we hold up the table that's wobbly at the bottom and we use that sheet to take care of that. You can't do that. That's why we have, again, the issue that we have right now with recruiting retention. People are not even seeing the institution of policing as legitimate, as a career option. And a lot of that has to do with what we're talking about right here. It's a lot of work to be done is what you're saying. And I think the whole the work that you're doing with evidence-based policing and pushing that agenda and that idea, the idea of needing coaching, doing consulting is really important. One thing I'm going to do, Obed, is I'm going to teach you how to pronounce my name. Uh-oh. It is Steve... <laughs> Morielli. 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 Morielli is the Italian way. It doesn't matter to me what you call me as long as you call me Steve. I'm okay. But I don't want you to be saying my name wrong all across the country and every, everywhere you go. But I, listen, as I wind down, because we're coming up just at the end of our session, I want to say that when I asked you to come on, you never know what's going to happen in a conversation. But you are an innovative guy. You are a knowledgeable guy. And you are one who has taken your experiences and are willing to share them with others. And you should be very proud of that. I mean that. It is an absolute pleasure to talk with you. And... And what I want you to do at the end here is that you have the last word. The people who are listening are from all over the world in many cases. There's so many people who are listening from New Zealand and from Australia and from Ireland and from the UK and obviously Canada and the United States. But as people who are looking to improve police agencies, what is your starting advice? How do you begin to look at your agency, not day to day, but longer term? 
tell the audience some of the things that they should begin to think about. The number one, before you even go anywhere, the number one thing you have to remember is what is the purpose of the accomplishment that you're looking to solve. Know what your why is. Know what it is that you want to do. Know for a fact that I want to improve policing through this avenue. Once you've got that figured out, and I'm not saying it's going to be a cakewalk, but it becomes much easier to reach that accomplishment. Even as the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing got off the ground, I mean, when I tell you they were more valleys than peaks, this is the norm of life. Yes. Nothing's ever going to be easy. Yep. You're always going to have barriers. But understand that you don't have to do it by yourself. There are other people who are probably doing the same thing that you're doing and you need to connect with them. That's why it's important to connect with organizations like the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Get connected with the 54th Mile Policing Project because we're going to have stuff coming out with that too. The National Policing Institute. There are other people in this space. It doesn't matter if you're a researcher, a community member, clergy, police officer, police chief, somebody who works in public safety, campus security, private security. There is literally a space for everybody to be a part of the solution. There is no oversaturation in one respect or another respect. We know that researchers are very good at crunching numbers and doing all that kind of stuff, but there's some nuances in the actual application in policing that they may not be aware of and they need to partner with a practitioner who can tell them and show them, you know, for example, those Mel Gibson movies where they're jumping sideways and shooting people in the pinky. That's not real life. That doesn't happen. That's a movie. Yeah. And then there's the other aspect. There's some things that can inform policing and better ways of policing. Increasing public safety and officer safety, that's backed by research. So that's why partnerships are very, very important. Whatever it is that you want to do, whatever avenue you want to get into, you don't have to do it by yourself. Find the why first and then partner with others who are like-minded folk. And once you start connecting and networking, going to these conferences, you'll start realizing, oh, there are better ways I can approach this perspective or that perspective. Hire a coach, somebody who might be able to help you individually navigate these waters. That's what a lot of people do, especially in business who want to be successful. They hire somebody who knows what it is that needs to be done and what that nomenclature looks like. And you want somebody to help guide you through that process. Part of what we're talking about is that you really have to take a step back and then take the first step. Cool. It requires a lot of self-reflection and that's really very, very important. And sometimes it's, I've walked into so many organizations and started talking to people. You'd ask a question and you'd get this blank look like, I've never been asked that question. I've never thought of it that way. I've, so it's very valuable for somebody who's been around to be able to come in and pose some questions and to get you thinking in a different dimension, which, which can be very valuable both to you and to the organization. And I think we all have to realize we can't do it. And there is the, the line. That's where a coach comes in or that's where a consultant comes in. That's where training comes in. That's where facilitation or focus group comes and can be very valuable. So Obed, thank you for hanging in there with me today. Well, thank you, Dr. Morielli. I apologize for butchering your name. <laughs> See how okay. it is? I just fell on the sword. I just screwed your name and butchered your <laughs> name. And for somebody who's got a weird first name, you know, you think I'd know better, you know? So now I'm never going to forget Morielli. 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 See, I just screwed that up again. That <laughs> no, 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 no. You can say it. It's closer, than, <laughs> it's closer than it was before. I've got Morelli and I, don't worry. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know who I am and you know how to reach me and I know how to yeah. reach you. But thank you for your time, for your energy. I wish you the best of luck. How can people reach you? So on social media, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, uh, at Dr. Obed Magny, that's E-R-O-B-E-D-M-A-G-N-Y. You can also email me at info at magnyleadership.com or obed at magnyleadership.com. I'm on LinkedIn, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. So yeah, you can reach out to me that way too. There's yeah, all kinds of ways. Uh, and when yeah. you just put in Obed, there has to be only a few that come up, right? <laughs> there's a there's a heavyweight boxer named Obed Sullivan. Yeah. I know that much. Okay. And there's a, somebody who has the same last oh, name. Maggie. He's a UFC fighter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's only one of me. There ain't too many of me. Like you said, you know, very few handsome brothers like myself. Yeah. Uh, we have to make sure we put that up. Thanks for the great <laughs> no, conversation. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. And I wish yeah, you the best, absolutely. best of luck. So that's another that's episode good. of the Cop Doc Podcast. I'm Steve Morielli coming to you from Boston. We just finished with Obed Magny and he's in Las Vegas. So thank you so much for listening. Appreciate you passing the podcast on to friends if you get anything out of it. And let me know if there's anything that you want to hear about or talk about, or if you've got some suggestions of people I should talk to or making changes and innovations in policing. Thanks so much. See you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Cop Doc Podcast with Dr. Steve Morreale. 
Steve is a retired law enforcement practitioner and manager turned academic and scholar from Worcester State University. Please tune into the Cop Doc Podcast for regular episodes of interviews with thought leaders in policing.